Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air, the official podcast of O'Neill and Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have three to one go with Cosmo Macero and an interview with Mary Carey and Barry Foley talking about a new bridge in Portsmouth named for their mother, Eileen Foley. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I talk about the Boston Globe Spotlight series, Seeing Red. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, business, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, we look at South Dakota's controversial public awareness campaign on methamphetamines and whether it's effective or offensive. And Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal joins us to talk about the Port of Boston. Finally, We'll talk turkey about Turkey Day, Thanksgiving. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. That's me. Kyan, we're coming up on another holiday. Yes. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This will be our this will be and my our birthday, This will be our final episode before Thanksgiving as I rec- as, as if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, so but, we'll, but we go my birthday then Thanksgiving. That, oh, that's the holiday. Your birth priorities. It's a national yes. holiday, as I recall. It should be. It's Cayenne Day. I can't. I can't. It shouldn't be. My husband would kill me if you ever heard me say that. All right, let's get to it. All right, Cayenne, let's talk about South Dakota and crystal meth. Major epidemic there, elsewhere in the country, but certainly there. Um, they have a very high profile public awareness campaign right now, also pretty controversial because the tagline is meth. We're on it. We're on it, right? Um, I think they tweaked. I think they may have tweaked the language a little bit. Punny once again. Absolutely. I mean, it's a high priority for South Dakota. Uh, I think that it's a high priority in a lot of places in defense of South Dakota. Um, it is. But uh, I think a lot of attention is being paid to the opiate epidemic everywhere, and this was their way of saying we need to raise some awareness about uh, methamphetamine I d- use. I, I did see in the, the relatively new Republican governor uh, came in with this as a priority. I did see that meth use has significantly increased among, wait for it, those 12 to 17 years old. 12-year-olds are doing meth? Yes. Okay. Well, in South Dakota. So they got a, there's a problem. Now, we have a difference of opinion on this because I think it's yeah. it's the perfect campaign. It's shocking. It hits you over the head. It gets your attention. And you kind of have to be a little bit soft in the head to not get it. I mean, come on. So there's one headline. Um, NBC News says that it is campaign is funny but state officials say the meth problem is deadly serious my question is was it supposed to be funny um i don't know that that was what they were looking for i'm with you and the governor tweeted and has me and has said you know our what we wanted was for people to talk about it and you're all talking about it now so mission accomplished which she's correct um i would argue that i i I don't think it's the most tactful campaign. Yeah. Um, it's $449,000 of public tax-paying dollars. Um, and I think I think, people, it's, I think I think the whole campaign, the spend is like $1.4 total, 
when it oh. comes to all the all the spend. I think, but you're right. The that's how much they've spent so far. Um, yeah. You know, it's. I think that having worked in state government for a long time, I think that when it comes to things in state government, people sometimes do expect them to be a little bit more. I don't want to say on the up and up because that's not the right words to use here, but a little bit more respectful yeah. um, and straightforward and. Maybe that's not the best way to raise a lot of public awareness. I would agree with that. Like the same old campaign isn't going to work. Uh, but when I look at like the picture of the three football players, like these are kids. Like, I- I'm baffled at their parents ever saying like, yes, you can put my child. But in this picture saying they, that they're on meth. No, I get that. But they're contributing to something important, an important initiative to, to, to solve the problem. I w- my question is, did they know that that's how their children were going to be represented? Maybe not. Maybe pro- probably not. You're right. Yeah, you know. let me, it so makes me uncomfortable, I, and, I and that's you. not necessarily a bad thing. No, no. So l- let me tell you why I, why I like it, and then let me tell you why I actually think that you're right. Um, ultimately, you'll be proven to be right here. But first of all, number one, it, it's simply, again, it gets your attention, right? And it, 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 it's, uh, it, it immediately uh, draws your attention to the campaign. It kind of hits you over there. Number two... The, the fundamental message is, hey, you know what? We have a problem, and we are, we are addressing it. We are attacking it. We are prioritizing it. We are on it. I like that a lot, and I like the fact it hits you over the head. It does, however, just inherently make a joke, right? It's, it, it basically is saying we're on it as in we're attacking the problem. And they're on and, meth. And this state has a problem. We yes. have a problem with meth. So, yeah, I, I, I get that. Here's why I think. Uh, so there, there, there's an, an agency uh, that was retained uh, to work with them on this. They're called Broadhead, and um, or something like that. <clears throat> um, and they got the contract to do this campaign based on some ideas they presented to the state, and their ideas were similar to but not exact. I think they presented some certain ideas. It sounds like someone at the state took it in this direction a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Guess who's not commenting on this at all? That agency will not talk about this campaign. They're referring everyone to the state. That sounds like the behavior where your ideas were taken in a different direction and you're like... Don't want to touch that. Don't want to touch this. Don't want to be the agency that did that. Yeah. Again, you want... uh, The idea of a public awareness campaign is to create public awareness. So when people... uh, When it has gone viral and we here sitting in um, downtown Boston and... (laughs) Studio 1 away off the historic Devonial room are talking about this. They have achieved something. I mean, we're, we're on, yeah, we're talking math. We're on math and anyway. there's yeah, the idea of is all press good press? Um, but I, I don't know. It just it didn't make me feel good. And not that any awareness campaign about people being on drugs should, I, but I found it a little uncomfortable and not the most respectful way to do and, it. And the final piece I'd have on it, on it is okay, so. You got my attention. Now well, not, what? Now what? what? What is the initiative other than just a, well, a f- other than just a, a nice catchphrase and some and some advertising? Yeah, to your point, we now know that there's a problem in South Dakota. Does that help anything? I don't know. Yeah. I would almost think if you're going to do a public awareness campaign, it's going to go viral like this. Make it a call to action of some sort, even if it's inherently in South Dakota. Um, but yeah, so you've made the awareness and what what's next and that's something that in terms of messaging you have to think about like and what we do here a lot and and talk about is this idea that number one what's the flip side there's so many companies that are brands that don't think about what the other side is and also 
What do you do now that you have people we people about, listening? We, we talked about milk it last last week yeah. recently. You know, everybody everybody wants to hit, hit strike gold, hit the gut milk. Everyone wants to. This is your brain on drugs, right? Yep. Very effective. You know, fried egg. This is your brain on drugs. Simple. I simple think concept. that I think this is in that universe, but it but it may prove to be like yeah, it, it didn't hits really, just didn't a really little work. off. Yeah, a little yeah. off. All right, Cayenne. Good luck. All right, up next, we're talking to Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal about the Port of Boston and a lot of uh, work being done at the Conley Terminal. Greg, good to have you back on OA On Air. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about the Port of Boston and <clears throat> some uh, some significant investment and, and uh, enhancements being made. Uh, you had a story um, just recently about uh, it. it, it uh, jumped out at me because you had some pretty significant figures and major shippers of goods and then uh, all from around the world here in New England uh, talking to you in the story. That's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Massport is making $850 million worth of improvements to Conley Terminal in South Boston. And, and the reason for that is back in 2016, the Panama Canal expanded to allow these gigantic ships to move through. Uh, but the but Boston Harbor isn't big enough to allow them to come to the port. So, you know, the port's missing out on business that's going to New York and other places on the East Coast. So, um, you know, they're they're dredging Boston Harbor. They're buying three giant new cranes that can handle these, these large ships better. Um, they're making a number of other improvements in order to try to woo these larger ships up to Boston. One of the things I learned in the piece is, <clears throat> indeed, that uh, anywhere between 50 to 100 and some odd mile trip from this region to the Port of New York is actually worth it, is actually cost-effective when the alternative is not really being able to do what you need to do out of the Port of Boston, right? That's right. So right now, the Port of Boston has three ships that, that call on, on the port every week. There are two from China. There's one from Northern Europe. So if you're shipping goods to those places or, or receiving goods from those places, that's great. But if it's anywhere else in the world, it, it, it's a problem. And so, you know, and actually, there, Massachusetts businesses are more likely to use New York than Boston to ship out goods um, just because New York goes to so many more places, including a, a key place is Southeast Asia. So kind of the, the, the big hope for, for Massport in, in making all these changes is to bring in more ships uh, calling on port. Um, and the big one would be South, Southeast Asia, um, especially with the trade war going on. You know, trade with, with China is definitely down. Um, Massachusetts companies are, are sourcing goods more from places like Vietnam, from Malaysia. Um, so to get a direct connection from Boston to Southeast Asia would be huge for a lot of businesses. You mentioned the trade war and, and uh, you know, a, a component of your story is sort of supposing these are great investments and a great move to be making, but the timing may not be perfect, right? That's right. So, yeah, the reason I actually got interested in this story was I've been interested for a few years because back in 2017, Beginning of 2017, they, they announced they were getting all this money for these improvements. And 2017 was a, a very different time, especially early 2017, uh, in, in global trade. Um, and since then, with you know the, the tariff war with, with China, all these tariffs being levied by, uh, on the U.S. and by the U.S., um, and also a, 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 slowed, a global slowed economic slowdown. That's also hurt international trade as well. So, so those factors, yeah, you know, you're, you're spending, Massport, the state, the federal government are spending all this money to improve the port of Boston, uh, but, but trade's been down the past few years. And I, asked, I, I spoke with the, you know, the, the leaders over at Massport about that, 
And they said, you know, yes, you know, the next two next few years might be rough, but you know, we have a 30, 30 year vision for this port and you know, yes, the trade war is going on now, but but we're looking beyond that to, to expanding trade in Boston. We're talking to Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal about the port of Boston and the Conley Terminal. Greg, you talked to a couple of um, executives, one Dan Kraft from the Kraft Group and International Paper, uh, Barry Tatelman of Jordan's Furniture, both indicating absolutely they want to do more shipping, more more business, more more. Uh, um, uh, a business out of the port of Boston, and and, and they're big big supporters and uh, and fans of what's going on there. That's right, and I, I should note that the the port of Boston had a, a pretty poor reputation internationally for for a long long time, and over the past five or six years or so, they've they've really improved things. Um, I think uh, since the beginning of the decade, activity there is up seventy seven percent. And yeah, uh, Dan Kraft of, of of the Kraft Group, he he runs um, international forest products, which trades in recycled paper and, and things like that. Uh, they're, they may, I think they may be the largest shipper out of Conley. Um, he's been using Conley a lot more, he said, just the improvements they've made already, even without the, this, you know, $850 million worth of changes, um, has, has really improved things out of the port. So he's using it a lot more. And he said if they can get more connections, uh, direct connections to and from Conley, uh, he'll use it even more. And uh, yet, uh, Barry over at uh, Jordan's Furniture told me the same thing. You know, he, he, big thing for him is time, you know, you know, customers all of a sudden they're, you know, they're buying a certain type of mattress, a t- certain type of couch. You know, he wants to get those in the, he wants to get those products in his stores as quickly as possible. Uh, and, you know, if he has to, right now he has to wait, if he's shipping into Boston, he has to get the goods transferred from, you know, a, a ship that goes from Vietnam to China and then from China to Boston. <coughs> the more time he can cut off that trip, the better for his business. One more thing you mentioned, um, some sort of, uh, I guess how I would describe from reading the story, uh, a productive and maybe even entrepreneurial uh, labor piece. Uh, I remember from, from what feels like a gazillion years ago being a, a business uh, reporter at, uh, here in Boston and writing about the longshoremen and the relationship with Massport, it was not, it was not very, po- it was not friendly. Um, it's, it sounds like that was one of the key hurdles to, number one, make it more efficient, number two, probably to um, and improve the reputation of the Port of Boston, right? Yeah, that that was a, a big piece of the puzzle. That's that's already in place. A few years ago, they they struck a new labor agreement with the uh, International Longshoremen's Association. Um, it reduced Massport's overtime costs and also linked um, worker pay more directly to productivity at the port. Um, and Massport officials said that's been a big help in the improvement they've said so f- they've seen so far. You know, as I've said, they're you know. I think, like I said, it's up 77% activity at the port since 2010, and a big part of that has been the the labor changes, I think. All right, Greg Ryan of the Boston Business Journal. Terrific cover story, shipping up to Boston. Um, check it out at the Boston Business Journal website. Greg, thanks a lot for uh, for joining. Thanks again. All right, Cayenne, Thanksgiving, right around the corner. You can, talk, you can talk Black Friday in retail. You can talk high school football. You can talk family. Let's just talk turkey. Okay, turkey. What is the role of turkey in your life? And then how do you, <laughs> and then how, what is your relationship with turkey on Thanksgiving? I, um, I'll, I'll begin your answer by providing my own. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I figured you might. <laughs> uh, I um, 
What is the reason we have turkey once a year traditionally? Because turkey kind of kind of sucks. It's, it's I mean not I, the best way. I, meat. I, I make look. I, I I'll have a, tur- a you know turkey sandwich like deli meat all the time, and I and I love the ritual of making turkey on Thanksgiving. I think I do a nice job with it, um, and and it's nice, but. It's not the kind of poultry that I'm that you're looking to eat every week or every day or no. every other day, and the chicken in terms well, of flavor, manageability, uh, a texture, and all that is, is superior. Tough. Turkey, turkey is a it's a lot of work, and uh, my friend Dave Andelman, who's uh, I'm sure he's already posting about this every year around this time, talks about how hey turkey. It's it's really it's not so great. The Phantom Gourmet. Fried turkey is really good. I know who he is. Yeah, I should have said the Phantom Gourmet though. Yes, for our listeners, um, I really like fried turkey. If you're gonna, I've had it. No, I've it. had that. It's good. It's, it's, it's um, and I'm not saying turkey is bad. Way. I'm just saying it's it, not my favorite. It, considering even a small turkey, you're looking at three to four hours of, of cook time. Yeah, you know, it's not come my on. favorite. Um, Generally, I am into Thanksgiving for the side dishes. I would eat mashed potatoes, stuffing, gravy, and cranberry sauce alone. But I feel like it's frowned upon, so I put a little bit of turkey on my plate because protein is good. Um, But in the scheme of what I eat, I I don't eat a lot of turkey. I eat more of everything else. Somehow, my opinion, somehow, whatever happens to that turkey between, say, 4 p.m. and about 8 p.m. on Thanksgiving night... It gets really, it gets better, right? That nighttime sort of, whether you're making a sandwich. Yeah. Whether See, I'm the ha- day after. I can't have one at night, but yes, uh, the next day. By the next day, I'm looking to get, I'm, I'm looking to make a soup and get it out of there. But but yeah. that night, that's probably the best meal of the day is the Thanksgiving night turkey. Absolutely. The, go- yeah. the leftover sandwich, the gobbler, it goes by some names or, you know, whatever people do, is better than the meal. Yeah. We So we do a very large Thanksgiving with my husband's family lots of people and then you take leftovers home but you know there's not a ton so my mother-in-law separately makes a whole turkey dinner so that we have like days of leftovers that's because great. you need that it's the best part of the meal you do need that yeah turkey also if you're not experienced well number one you mentioned a fried turkey right there you're, you're burning the house down if you not <laughs> if you don't know how to do that right gotta do it outside and, very far away from any structure and from a food Safety perspective, you got to get that thing right. Yes, you got to get that internal temperature at one sixty-five. I think it is. Mm-hmm. You, you got to get that right. You need a good. Yeah, you don't want to be making people sick on things. You like pie, cayenne? Yeah. Were you like here when I made the pecan, pecan pie one yeah, year? Yeah, it was excellent. I love you know. I love I'm, pecan a, I'm pie. a Johnny come lately to the pecan pie like the last five years. You did. You came late to the party. Big lover of it. I'm not but a huge great. pie lover. No, it's great. Pecan pie is nice. Uh, pecan pie is great. I love a great apple pie. Um, of course. And, yeah, yeah I mean, the de- but, like, you're so full by the time dessert. <laughs> and when you get a lot of relatives coming over, everyone's bringing a pie. It's like, well, everyone, you know, No one knows what to bring, so they bring a dessert. They, That's they, what they do. Yeah, you get more, enough pie for a month. Yeah. <laughs> you All start right. a club. Well, look, have a great Thanksgiving. And to you. I will. You and your family. And, and, and to our producer, Catherine, and have one also. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving, um, Catherine. Happy Thanksgiving. And, that, and, and that'll be it for this uh, this edition. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, OA listeners. All right, take care. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program was recorded in Studio 10A. 
just off the historic Tip O'Neill Road at our building in Government Center, downtown Boston. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Eileen Dondero Foley was the longest serving mayor of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a longtime state senator and one of the most beloved figures in the history of New Hampshire politics. She passed away in 2016. Now a private way in Portsmouth has been named in her honor, Eileen Dondero Foley Avenue. We recently sat down with her daughter, Mary Carey Foley, and son Barry Foley to talk about her remarkable career in public office and political life. Um, I can start with that. Um, first thing I can say about my mother is that she was a great listener. Um, she was very sincere, um, and she treated everyone always the same. Um, she was a person with a huge heart, a big heart, and um, everyone, doesn't matter who you were, how old you were, um, she treated everyone fairly and, and equal, for sure. My mother was full of warmth, kindness, and had a tremendous sense of humor. And she was not afraid to laugh at herself. Not a day goes by that someone doesn't approach me and say, Mary Carey Foley, do you know what your mother did for me years ago? I love your mother. I miss your mother. Mary Carey, how did, um, how did your mother shape your view specifically of public service, of the role of a public official, of a political leader, of a community leader? But Barry and I lived with it um, every single day, every hour of the day. Um, we watched her go out the door at 6 a.m. and sometimes not get back until 10 or 11 p.m. at night because she had all kinds of speaking engagements and um, she was just as good at the first one at 7 a.m. than she was at probably the 9 p.m. one. She... Did she inspire you? Oh, the inspiration she gave me and to my brothers. Um, she, she certainly inspired us and taught us so many of life's lessons. Don't litter. Do something nice for someone every single day. Be kind to everyone. You must grow up a Democrat. Don't even <laughs> think about not growing up as a Democrat. Well, I can tell you right now, Barry and I are Democrats. Barry, when people ask about your mother, what's just, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The first thing you remember? Well, the first, when people, when, yeah, like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of your mother? Um, just how overwhelmingly pleasant she was with, you know, with everybody. Um, being, you know, one of her three children, it was just an experience, really, to be, just to see the other side of her, um, not as much the political side as it was, you know, the side at home, the um, inside 39 Sunset Road that a lot of people, uh, most people didn't get to, you know, see or, or hear about um, all the stories and stuff that, that we shared as a family growing up together. Um, those are just memories that I have with my mother that um, when people talk about her, it's usually obviously as a, as a political figure, but um, there's just a whole other side to her that was um, a lot of people really didn't get to see that uh, we were 
you know, obviously very special to be able to, to, um, to live it. She also had the ability to bring opposing sides together and treated everyone with respect, whether it was a homeless person or it was a diplomat. She treated everyone the same. She liked Will Rogers saying, strangers are only friends we haven't met. But the one that I like that I, uh, that I repeat a lot is Grantland Rice's saying, for when the one great scorer comes and writes against your name, he writes not that you won or lost, but how you played the game. Wow. One of the great sports writers of the early 20th century, Grantland Rice, right? Grantland Rice. Barry, is there something about um, a violin a um, that would surprise people? I think one thing that would, that would surprise people um, is the fact that um, she obviously, she had a life outside of politics, and um, though a lot of people really didn't get to see that side of her, um, she had a lot of hobbies that people probably wouldn't aware of. Um, one of them for sure was reading. Um, she pretty much wore out the Porsche Public Library going in all the time to, to get books. Um, she loved to stay home on weekends when she had a chance to, you know, I can just picture her in the house with a, a house coat on. Um, she always pretended that she was vacuuming or cleaning. She was not a good house cleaner. Um, <laughs> she would leave the vacuum out in the middle of the living room to let people think she was using it. Um, we talked about it before. She loved you know, watching candlepin bowling. That was kind of her, mm-hmm. her thing on mm-hmm. Saturday afternoons. Um, she loved watching when uh, Jack Nicholas was in contention for golfing on weekends, usually on the Sunday. She loved watching him golf. Um, she loved watching old movies. Um, we used to call them uh, brutal movies, and she'd have on, you know, Catherine Hepburn and a lot of these old old movies that, you know, at the time were big hits. And um, she liked listening to Tony Bennett music on the radio. So was she any good as a candlepin bowler? No, I never saw my mother bowl. <laughs> And I don't really, oh, she just liked to watch. I yeah. don't, I don't yeah, know yeah. where that actually No, no, no she liked to watch Cannabin Bowling. Oh, yeah. She loved to watch the PGA, particularly Jack Nichols. Yeah, yeah so yeah. That, those were things. Those are that, two uh, good pursuits. I mean, those are two good good spectator uh, opportunities. And one other thing was she liked actually when Syracuse was on, she graduated from Syracuse, and um, whenever Syracuse was on TV and basketball, uh, mostly basketball, she used to, to like to see what the score was, but she didn't spend a lot of time watching them. She was getting, she, you know, obviously would get very nervous, hoping they would win. But um, those are just some of the memories of my mother that um, that were actually in the house that a lot of people didn't um, didn't see. Now you you mentioned uh, the house coat. Now you mentioned it when I when I talked to you earlier. So, and she had patented the house coat to overcoat to the attend the wake and come back and no yeah, one's the wise. Tell go, me about yeah, that. She would go out the door in her house coat and she, cause she, that's how she was comfortable. And she'd go in the door and John Farrell, who was the, um, the undertaker, um, he would run to his coat rack and he would grab his London Fog raincoat. Oh, okay, so it was and it was supplied would, by the by the oh, funeral yes. home. Oh yes, oh yeah, oh wonderful. Well, during the winter she may have worn something down. Yes, but when he'd see her coming in the door with the house coat, he ran to his um, his uh, hat, his coat rack. Yes, and he grabbed the London Fog, and then she would uh, go in and say a prayer and talk to the family. Yep. 
and if, see if they needed anything. And then on the way out, she dropped the coat, and um, she'd come home. And b- because, of course, standard practice, any good, pol- any good politician knows you're going to go to a lot of wakes, right? Yes. You're going to attend hundreds of <laughs> right. wakes over the years. But my mother so would go to... a system. She, not only would my mother go to um, wakes of people that she knew, she always went to wakes of people that she was afraid no one would attend. And, and in the church, she would always go to their funerals, maybe stand in the back, yep. you know, in the pew. But um, she was always afraid. I said, Mama, did you know that person? No, she said, but I was afraid nobody else would go. She said, so I, I wanted to go and pay my respects. I mean, that's the definition of, of co- human compassion right Yes, there, it is. Right? Yes. Attending to, to, right. to someone's funeral to make sure that uh, someone bears witness on, on, right. on the, recognizing that right. person's life. And the other thing I wanted to mention was um, she was instrumental in establishing the Community Council of Senior Citizens. And she wrote a monthly column um, in the newsletter, the Senior Citizen Newsletter. And then after that, she would compi- she compiled them in two books. Um, the first one was The Pleasure Is All Mine. And the second one was The Pleasure Is All Mine Again. Again. Yeah. Let's talk about the bridge. Uh, you, you, you shared a remarkable anecdote um, and, and the, the history of um, um, a memorial bridge. Um, so when, you, when your mother was just five years old in 1923, I think it was, uh, she, she attended uh, the, uh, the christening, the, uh, uh, the opening of that bridge, the chosen. ribbon cutting. She was chosen for the ribbon cutting of that mm-hmm. bridge. And then, of course, many years later, the rebuilt bridge she attended. Uh, and you told me a, a, a funny anecdote about about that day and afterwards. Can, right. Can you share um, that? Yeah. She was living with me at the time on Bow Street, and so we would sit out on the deck and we would watch the old bridge being torn down, and then we would watch the new bridge uh, being built. And prior to that, um, she was asked to cut the ribbon. Um, And so the day arrived and Barry was able to get a golf cart up to my condominium building and uh, my mother rode down to cut the the ribbon on the bridge and to the tune of Rocky with hundreds and hundreds of people on either side of her and it was just wonderful. And by the time we got her up to where the ribbon was going to be cut, everybody was really kind of closing in on her. And it was a really, really hot day. So I was, it was tough, to, you know, having her up there, but the police officers were pretty much good getting people away. And um, she cut the ribbon. She cut the ribbon and uh, I had the, I was in the golf cart at the time and I took her across the first car, car going across um, the bridge um, and she just loved it. She loved it, but it was hot, hot, hot. And I really needed to get get her back in air condition. And um, Brian Massey was with us, and Brian was her one of her nurses at her primary care, and he loved her, and she loved him. So that's why I invited him. But at the time, then I was glad that I had somebody with medical training sure. just in case something had happened. So we got her to the house and. Brian took her in and got her pajamas on and everything, and she she rested. And then I had to go to work, and I and I leaned over and I said, "Mama, you did a great job today. I love you." 
and I didn't think she heard me, and I tiptoeing out of the room, and she said to me, Mary Carey? Yeah, Mom? No more bridges. <laughs> <laughs> she was done. So, yeah, she, was, she... She had enough excitement. Yeah, she, she was done. She, I, I have to imagine that, uh, Mary Carey, that your mother was, was one of those touch points in New Hampshire, one of those people that if you're coming through as a presidential candidate, you better make sure you, you stop in to see her. Mm -hmm. Am I right about that? That's right. That's right. They would make appointments, um, and we would meet. I, I went with her for most of them um, back in the, for the 88 election, which is when we met um, Vice President Biden, which was a treat for both of us. And they all wanted a piece of her. They all wanted to have their picture taken with her. Um, and you haven't asked me this question yet, but on the national, on a national scale, yes. I often think what she would think of it. And I know that she would hate the divisiveness. She would hate the lack of civility. My mother, if she didn't, if she liked someone, they were a peach. If she didn't, my mother would call that person a crumb. I believe um, I know someone today who would probably be a crumb, but there might have been something like an adjective before that, and I've never heard my mother swear. Yeah. So um, that's how strongly, how strongly she would feel. Well, it's, I mean, as, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if you call it an insult, but as an assessment of someone who is a disappointment, it is, uh, that's very powerful, yet completely non-profane, right? Right. You could call someone a crumb, and, and, and you could be calling them a hundred other things that sound worse, but it's very, very powerful. Crumb. She had a the good, visual of that she, is... She mastered the language. She did master the language. Yeah. She did, Cosmo. You, you Thank you. You mentioned Joseph Biden, and I know you, uh, over the years, uh, yourself and, and your mother, your family developed a relationship. You called your mother mom or mom or whatever. Someone else did too, right? Yes. He, he'd say, um, Mom Foley, Mom Foley, and he would run up to her and give her a big hug and a kiss, and he, or if she was at one point in a wheelchair, he just knelt right down. He never towers over people. He gets to their, you know, to their height. Um, that's one of the reasons why I love him so much. Was politics considered the family business around your household? Or, or sort of, or, or just kind of a, just a, a you know, a, a, an obligation or a, or a commitment? Um, I think for me, it was, it was, <laughs> it was basically what she did and what our house was. I mean, I never really thought of it as something not normal. I mean, pretty much my whole life growing up, whether she was started off like on a school board or something and, you know, worked her way up. She was, one thing we haven't talked about at all, um, actually, you know, we get into the city of Portsmouth and all this, but I don't even know how many years, but for years and years, my mother was in the, you know, the state Senate. Um, there was 24 state, you, uh, 24 state senators in New Hampshire and her um, district. Her district was actually 24. So, and though that, of course, is going um, to Concord at the time, I believe it was six months a year. So, um, when she was in the state senate, 
at one time she worked for United States Senator Tom McIntyre in Portsmouth, and um, she used to run his Seacoast office. And when she run for the Senate and get elected, um, she would have to resign her position with Senator McIntyre to get off the payroll to go up to do the um, mm -hmm. the Senate thing for six months, and then she would get back on the payroll and do it. Um, those are things like that that um, that I remember the most about. So it was it was just a normal normal way of living. I mean, your, your mother lived to, to to be 97, almost 98 by about five days. Yeah. Simple question. She had to have some healthy habits. I mean, that's a good that's a good long life, right? I mean. It, it, what was her secret to, 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 to longevity? That's an amazing... Uh... You know what? I would love to say um, it was her <laughs> cooking. She was a terrible cook. She terrible. did not cook at all. I mean, very, very little. I mean, there was like four things growing up that we had. That what were was they buried? Fish chowder. Fish chowder, some kind of Chinese thing that she took out of the cans. Yeah. Ragu. And it was something Grammy's else. Tomato, Grammy spaghetti yeah. sauce. There yeah. wasn't much to it. To her, but um, so it wasn't fine dining. The best meals that okay. we had um, was when we went out. Um, Maybe she just comes from good stock. She came from good stock, I guess. You know, she liked to, you know, make popcorn. Even to this day, most people make popcorn through a, you know, a, a popper thing on the stove. But did she? Did, did she? Did she? Uh, go for walks every day? Did, did she not. rise early, go to bed? No, no she, just she lived, used to she lie in bed living. and read. She didn't oh, love to read. Love yeah. to walk around town and stuff, but to actually get out and actually walk to walk, yeah. absolutely not. I don't ever remember seeing her ever doing that. <laughs> and um, her actually, her upbringing, um, she lived on Congress Street on top of the uh, little fruit and candy store. Her, her father, Charles Dondero, owned uh, uh, right there on Congress Street. So she, they, the whole family, the four daughters, my grandmother and my grandfather, they lived <coughs> upstairs over the fruit store, which is where um, I'm gonna say Cafe Mediterraneo is now, right up, right on top there, that's where she lived. Um, and after my mother, my grandmother was, was, uh, was, uh, um, during the time she was mayor, she also owned a uh, nursing home. So that's where the three of us learned to be kind to older people. Sure. Um, was right there at the nursing home that she owned. Mary Carey, another former um, mayor of Portsmouth, Ted Connors, uh, once said that Eileen had a magnetic personality. When you talked to her, she was listening to you and had everything focused on you. Mm -hmm. it, first of all she didn't shake people's hands she would hug them she would, she's a hugger and you can see that I am also um, she always had a firm handshake and she had she had direct eye contact and she always stayed that way um, when speaking to someone and she would make the facial expressions I mean she just felt what they were saying whether it was good news or wh whether it wasn't so good news but she would console or she would be, you know, celebrating with them for, you know, for that type of thing. All right, Barry and Mary Carey. There's going to be an Eileen Dondero Foley Avenue in Portsmouth. Let's hear your reaction to that. This is the type of thing that um, really, you know, creates someone's legacy, you know, to last longer. Um, there's a lot of people, I mean, I've worked 
for the city now for 38 years. I'm the assistant recreation director and the middle school athletic director. And I don't say anything to people, very little. And I know a lot of people that come in, they have their kids go to Don Dero School. Well, Don Dero School was named after my grandmother. But I, a lot of people don't, do, don't know that now, and I don't you know, spread the word about you know, that, whatever. Um, but it's things like having the street named after her is that um, it really cr helps create you know, a legacy. It's, it's out where the hospital is. Um, it's, you know, it's just a great location you know, to have something like this done. And um, you know, to come down here today and to talk about her and talk about you know, the street and things like that, um, when the when the Portsmouth Herald every day you know talks about the meetings in the city hall, they always say you know the school board will meet in the Eileen Foley City Council chambers. So there are times that we do see stuff in in print, but um, those times are becoming you know rarer and rarer as we're getting older. And um, but I just can't you know emphasize how important that I think that to, to name something like that after her. It's um, it's really um, rewarding, and I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome to Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Cheyenne. Thanks for calling in this week. I'm happy to call in. Sorry, I'm, I'm out of the office, not, not with you. That's but all right. We'll forgive you just this once. Distance. This is the first long-distance uh, interview I think we've had. So it's, we did it's one different. from Ireland. I, well, you really, you, you really didn't do it with me. You did it with uh, Martin O'Malley. That's true. Yes, I stand corrected. Yeah. Okay, so this right. is our long-distance anyway. two minutes with Tom. Right, so that was that was the distance award winner. Anyway, what are we talking about? I hope we're talking about the Globe Spotlight team. Three articles on traffic congestion and what is wrong with what is going on with Boston. Anyway. So even long distance, you have been reading. It's been a great series. It has been. Uh, you know, it's, it's complicated not only by building, the massive amount of building that's going on in the city of Boston, without seemingly much planning for such things as congestion, people moving, and what happens after construction gets done with housing, jobs, offices, and so forth. How do people move from one point to another? Complicated by Uber and all the other ride-sharing things that we have in existence, not only here in Boston, but around the world, mm -hmm. that are furthering congesting you know, the city streets and the greater Boston area. Um, it was fascinating to me that the mayor told me not long ago that every month in the city of Boston, there are 4 million Uber rides. That's a lot 4 of rides. Million. That's a lot of rides, a lot of traffic, and a lot of kind of automobiles on the streets adding to the congestion that is already very much in congestion. So people complain. You know, mm -hmm. we have in our own office a couple of people who travel an hour and a half, two hours every day, both ways to get to the to get to the office, and they've had a half hour to forty minutes added on to their trek because of the congestion. Once they hit four ninety five, and then yeah, 
I mean, I live less than 20 minutes from the office, and it takes me oftentimes just as long to get in as it takes some of our team members here who live in Western Mass. So the answers are a lot in coming. I mean, is it it technology? Is it to have cars in the skies, you know, taking people, um, carrying people? I I do think we have to incent or disincent people from coming into the city in automobiles to see if we can't make sure that they're using people movers, mass people movers, wherever they possibly can, but having an opportunity to use the key wherever they can to double up in automobiles wherever they possibly can and perhaps not thinking about, you know, penalizing people for coming into the city with one person in the in the car driving mm-hmm. and simply parking, taking up space on the roads and in parking lots. It's not working. And so maybe, just maybe, we have to employ some of the things that have been used in far-off places like Toronto and London mm-hmm. where people are disincented to drive their automobiles into the city and they find if they do during certain hours of the day. Yeah, lots of bicyclists in London, I learned this week from the Globe. It's, you know, you bring up public transportation, and one of the things that we hear people say, and it was, of course, part of the Globe um, stories, is that the public transportation system is not reliable. Um, as a person that takes it daily, it is not always reliable. Uh, it can be incredibly infuriating. But I still prefer my train ride to driving in to the city every day. But if our, I would like to think that if our transportation system got to a place where it was reliable, more frequent, and more people could take advantage and feel like it suited their lifestyle, that we would get people off the roads. That's right. First of all, we have to fix what's wrong. And we have to make the assumption that we can fix what's wrong and get people back on the T, uh, back on commuter rail, and have them, you could be a walking advertisement for them. You know, you enjoy it more than you do an automobile. And that's because you have opportunities to read a newspaper, talk to the person next door to you, or just uh, kind of relax a little bit and let somebody else do the driving. Yeah, no, I don't like to talk to people on the train in the morning, <laughs> but I do read the news. <laughs> yes. That's where I kind of start my there day. It's where I start to put my day in order, and I, you know, I read the news. I start catching up on emails. Do you think and, there's obviously already and, been yep. a lot of a lot of pressure on this administration and the legislature to somehow solve this very very large problem? I do not for a moment pretend like I have the answers to any of these issues. Do you think that with the Globe doing the Spotlight series, it adds pressure at all or is it just the globe taking a look at something that ever a little bit more in depth that we've all been talking about now for you know years but months to the governor but i also think it gives him cover to do whatever he has to do to make sure that whatever has been going wrong not over his administration only but over the last 30 or 40 years where this that and the other thing dealing with the t and commuter rail had been deferred because of lack of money yeah so now, often kicked down, the, the can people, was kicked down. And now people are being forced to say, look, we can't any longer turn our back on the responsibilities. Fiscally, this needs, this needs to be more sound. Fiscally, we need to get this thing in shape. And guess what? We're all going to have to bite hard and make sure that we understand that it's going to cost money and it has to come from somewhere. So I think it gives pretty good relief to the governor and his program to, to you know, upgrade and repair the needs on the tea and commuter rail. Well, I doubt that this is the last we're going to hear from the Globe or uh, the media, and certainly not the public on this issue. So I'm sure we will be talking about it again. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it again because it's uh, it's, 
it's not a it's not an overnight deal. It's something that's going to take months, if not years, to solve, with a lot of money being spent. We just make sure we have to make sure, and this is the governor's responsibility, that it gets spent prudently, efficiently, and that it gets spent in a timely fashion. Yep. We'll right. be back to visit this issue again, and I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. And I'm glad, the, I'm glad the Globe had the three-part series. It's really very important. Yes, and clearly something that they've been working on for a while. You know, for anyone that doesn't, these Spotlight series uh, take a lot of work. They do not come together quickly, so um, a lot of work goes into that. So thanks to that team, too. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.